ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Surf writer Tim Baker was in his early 50s and seemingly riding a very good wave in life. He had a job he loved, a beautiful family, and he lived walking distance from the beach on the Gold Coast. But then on a work trip to LA, Tim began needing to use what Americans call the restroom. A lot. A lot, a lot. So back in Australia, Tim went to his doctor for some tests. And then a urologist gave him the awful news. Tim was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer and the cancer had spread to his bones. He's now written a candid account of living with terminal prostate cancer and the grim but rarely spoken about side effects of his life-saving hormone therapy, side effects that have profoundly rocked his identity and his relationships. His book is called Patting the Shark. Hi, Tim. Hey, Sarah. So you grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne. How on earth did you become a a surf rat? Um, I always say I have the um, French president, Francois Mitterrand, to thank for that. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, there was, uh, we were living in Canada at the time. We moved around a lot with my dad's work and they were doing the French nuclear testing in the South Pacific. And we were going to stop over in Tahiti on our way home from Canada back to Australia, but Qantas were no longer flying to Tahiti. And so we flew home via Hawaii instead. And my older brother had surf lessons. It was a very kind of Brady Bunch (laughs) type scenario. And he was so smitten with it that when we got back to Australia, we started holidaying down the coast on the Mornington Peninsula, Flinders and Point Leo. And then I graduated to Phillip Island and, you know, got the bug and just would go to any lengths to go to the beach. What did you love about it when you think about those early experiences on a board? Yeah. Look, my very first surfs were on family holidays back to Perth, where my family originally came from at Cottesloe Beach, a little place called Slimy Reef at North Cot, which a lot of locals will be familiar with. And I was on a, you know, polystyrene foam board called a Little Nipper. I was 11 years old. And I can still picture just the colourful reef kind of just flashing by beneath me and sort of learning how if I kind of pulled up on one side of the board, I could accelerate and, and just getting kind of spat up on the sand and, and running after the board and retrieving it and just running back to do it again. And I guess as someone who'd grown up in Melbourne and lived in Canada, you know, that, um, being in the ocean just felt so seductive and, and everything about surfing. I think I just caught the tail end of that kind of hippie soul surfing period. And I loved everything about it, the aesthetics, the stripy hang ten T-shirts and the magazines and the, all the artwork, you know, the surfboard decals, you know, it was all just so rich and exotic to a young boy from Melbourne. And I remember Tim Winton saying in breath, you know, like he'd never seen grown men do something beautiful. And, yeah, there's definitely something in that because you see a good surfer ride a wave And as Jack Johnson, the great Hawaiian musician, says, you know, like, what are we doing out there other than dancing? (laughs) Your first job, though, was far from the ocean as a cadet journalist with the Melbourne Sun. Mm. What did you buy to wear for your big professional (laughs) debut? You've done your... um, I went to Fletcher Jones. They had a special on these three-piece poo brown suits for, I think it was $99 with the reversible waistcoat and the extra pair of trousers. (laughs) 
<laughs> so what an investment. You could pretend you had a different outfit for five days of the week. So you could wear it with the waistcoat, you could reverse the waistcoat, you could ditch the waistcoat, you could wear the second <laughs> pair of trousers and you didn't fool anybody that you just had one cheap suit. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of stories were you chasing in that um, in that three-piece reversible suit? Well, you did a bit of everything as a cadet, you know, from the fruit and vegetable prices to shipping movements to what's called five-point sports results. So 1984 LA Olympics in all those reams of athletic results, every Australian athlete's name was in bold. That was me. Yeah. That's a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> but then I quickly moved on to police rounds, which is where I kind of did my first proper reporting. And that was um, as grisly as it was, I think it was a really good experience, really good grounding in reporting. And I recall literally being out at night and running to a phone booth and filing off the top, you know, just having to dictate a story to a copy taker five minutes before first edition deadline as a green 19 or 20-year-old in my poo brown suit. <laughs> what were the other older journos like that you worked with? Yeah, well, the head of police rounds was a guy named John Sylvester, who's a very celebrated crime reporter. You know, he was responsible for the Underbelly series. Um, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I thought he was quite elderly back then, 40 years ago. But, um, you know, he was a legend even then. And, that, and they were a great collection of characters, big Jim Tennyson and Charlie Walker and... You know, it was in the day when they say, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, you know. So they'd, um, they'd file half the newspaper's stories and then they'd march triumphantly down to the Phoenix Hotel to swill beers and pat each other on the back and, yeah. So why didn't you stay in that, in that world? What happened? Um, I, I then moved, I got moved to the sports desk and I was destined for the life of an Australian rules football writer, which suited me fine. I, I thought that was going to be a lovely future. Um, and then I just you know, was reading Tracks magazine one day and there was an ad in it for an associate editor's position. And I thought, wow, that, that'd be amazing. But like Tim Baker from Blackburn ain't getting a job at Tracks, you know. <laughs> but I just, I sent an application in anyway. And, and I say as literally with as much expectation as like buying a scratchy at a newsagent. And lo and behold, I got the job. I, they had a, um, a, they'd been bought by a mainstream publisher and I later learned that the publisher had decreed that they hire a proper journalist who surfed a bit rather than a proper <laughs> surfer who wrote a bit. <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of why I got the gig. Was it as good as you'd imagine working on surf magazines? It was, although it was quite different because I grew up reading tracks and had this vision of an old beach house at Whale Beach, you know, with a resident red setter and an office bong and, you know. Are you telling me it's not like that? Well, by that stage, the, they'd been bought by this mainstream publisher and dragged kicking and screaming into downtown Darlinghurst. And so we were in this big old converted terrace in Crown Street, Darlinghurst, surrounded by, you know, brothels and there were junkies in the car park ripping off car stereos. And it was, it was in the 80s where, you know, the Sydney crime scene was pretty colourful and our, our local watering hole, the Tradesman's Arms, was where Roger Rogerson went to relax, you know. So it was a bit of an eye-opener for, for a boy from the, bur from the burbs, for sure. Well, you know, surfing's meant to have this whole chill, relaxed vibe about it, mm. but did any of the, the surfers you covered ever get a little bit cranky with the way you'd written about them? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think a lot of professional sports people have fairly fragile egos. And I think surfing in particular, because they were always struggling to get recognition. And so they'd be very touchy about anything that they thought dented their professional image. But the the time I got in most trouble was with a pretty fearsome Hawaiian character named Johnny Boy Gomes, who didn't like something I'd written in the magazine. And uh, I remember walking into Mark Okalupo's sort of backyard at a place called Rocky Point in Hawaii one day. And Johnny Boy had just won the Pipeline Masters, the most prestigious surf contest in the world. And he walked in and I knew he was angry with me for this article. And he saw me and he approached me. And in my peripheral vision, I just saw everyone. It was like a Western movie. I just saw people just disappear, just move away. And before I knew it, I had a screwdriver at my throat. He had sort of snapped into this kind of warlike state, like this fearsome Polynesian warrior, and was just describing my bloody dismemberment, which was about to (laughs) occur. Did you Um, get out of that? uh, I felt like a hostage negotiator, you know. I just was trying to talk him down and explain that I hadn't meant any offence and that, you know, he was a professional surfer and coverage in a surf magazine was, you know, what his sponsors wanted and that anyway, I was was just like flapping my tongue. And um, he just eventually, I think, just grew tired of it and wandered off. And I always remember Oki walked up to me afterwards and he looked at me and goes, I can't believe he didn't punch you. And he was like almost almost a bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So as, as long as that screwdriver wasn't used, yeah, you, yeah. you got off you got off lightly. Yeah, sense. yeah. You've written many books about surf mm. culture, and in one of them, A Century of Surf, you tracked down an elderly man called Harry Wick. What mm. was what's his story? Oh, look, I thought at the time, and I'm so glad you picked up on this because I thought it was the greatest untold story I'd ever come across in my life, and. Midget Farrelly, who was 1964 world surfing champion, sort of tipped me into it. He said, you should check out this. He knew I was writing a history of Australian surfing. He said, you should check out this episode of Foreign Correspondent where they talk about this surfer from Manly, um, John Willie Williams, who was the real-life character in the film The Great Escape. He was the Australian involved in the tunnelling. But he was best friends with another surfer from Manly named Harry Wick, who was a German-born Australian who became Australian surfboard champion in 1939. Um, And then when the the Second World War broke out, um, he was kicked off the Australian team that was travelling to Hawaii. He was sacked from his job as an aircraft engineer as a threat to national security. And then he was arrested and put in Long Bay Jail and then sent to an internment camp just because of his nationality? Uh, yeah, because he was born in Germany. He came to Australia when he was 14. He had an Australian mother and a German father. So he was locked up during the war? Yeah, for I think about two years. And I think halfway through the war, they kind of realised he wasn't any kind of threat to national security. But it was it was bonkers. You know, his house um, overlooked Sydney Harbour as a sort of heads and the authorities decided that his family were monitoring movements in and out of the heads and, you know, reporting to enemy submarines. And it was just extraordinary. And I managed to track him down and he was still alive. He was 98, living in a retirement village in Victoria Point on Moreton Bay in Queensland called Tranquil Waters <laughs> Retirement Village, which is a perfect place for a surfer to retire. 
But he just had this incredible story. And, I mean, apart from his story, I just never thought I would learn about surfing in Australia in the 1930s firsthand from someone who was there. And so it was an incredible How did he remember experience. it? What did he tell you it was like? Well, he was surfing on so- solid timber boards that were like 100 pounds, so heavy. Um, but he, because he was an aircraft engineer, he cottoned on to the idea of hollow boards, you know, with that's like a construction, like an aeroplane wing with a frame inside. And so he just started winning all the paddleboard races on this hollow board. But he also sort of pioneered surfboards as a rescue craft because the surf life saving movement, they were kind of quasi-military and they loved the surf boats and the, you know, the reel and belt and reel, all that kind of stuff. Um, and he said, you know, I found if I paddled out on a surfboard, I got it, I got out there quicker. As soon as the person could hold onto the board, they would relax and I could get them on the board and get them in. He said, you know, you go out with a, a belt and line, you get pulled underwater half the time, the person's still freaking out because they don't have anything solid to hang on to. But for whatever reason, the surf life saving authorities deemed the surfboard sort of unsuitable as a rescue device. And after being locked up during the war, did he, mm. once he was free, did he go back to surfing? Well, he, he tried to, but he was kind of shunned. You know, the, the Manly Surf Club wouldn't welcome him back and he just gave up surfing. You know, the boards were so big and so heavy. If you weren't in a surf club, it was kind of hard to be a surfer because they weren't very transportable. So most surfers just stored their boards at the surf club and surfed out the front. But he'd also developed a, a crude early roof rack so he could put his board on the roof. This, this is before he was locked up. And so he was quite mobile. He and his mate, Lou Marath, would travel up and down the coast to a degree that I didn't imagine was happening in the 30s. And he also described experiences like broaching, kind of coming down the wave sideways and letting the wave break over the top of you. And, like, people talk about tube riding beginning in the late 60s, early 70s, and this guy was describing being inside the tube of a wave in the 1930s. And so it completely rewrote my understanding of surf history. Was he happy to be found, do you think, Tim? Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time with him. I visited him numerous times and and once with the niece of his old friend, John Willie Williams, who had written a book about her uncle and his prisoner of war experience. So that was a lovely coming together. Um, And then I wanted to organise, I spoke to Surfing Australia, the governing body for surfing, and said, can we get this guy an Australian team blazer, you know, sort of retrospectively. Um, But his family were uncomfortable with it. They thought he would find it too upsetting and I had to respect that. But I always think, I don't know, I reckon Harry would have loved it. And he he made it to 100. He died at 102. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, I wish he'd got that blazer. Was Was it work that brought you to the Gold Coast? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'd never seen myself ever living on the Gold Coast. I was a city boy. You know, I'd grown up in Melbourne. I'd lived in Sydney. I became a bit, um, I had a bit of a falling out with my publisher over a trip to Hawaii that I wanted to treat as work and he thought should be considered a holiday. (laughs) And um, so we had a a difference of views and the um, very canny publisher of the opposition magazine Surfing Life got wind of this and thought I might be amenable to an approach uh, and he flew me up to the Gold Coast um, to a place called the Old Burley Theatre Arcade, which was literally the Old Burley Theatre, now a small little sort of shopping hub, and with some offices above. And he said, well, this would be your desk, and that's Burley Heads out the window, and we surf before work, at lunchtime, after work, 
If if we if you have a hangover, you order a nachos from the Mexican restaurant downstairs <laughs> and ask for it to be ready in an hour, and you go for a surf and you come in and have nachos, and that's our hangover cure. And I thought, okay, where do I sign? <laughs> How much travel did you do in your your writing about surfing? Oh, I've been blessed. An extraordinary amount. Um, Gosh, Hawaii, lots of times, maybe a dozen times. Indonesia, maybe a dozen times. Um, Tahiti, Sri Lanka, uh, South America, Chile, Peru, Brazil, Costa Rica, Mexico, California. So I've just seen the whole coastline of the world, basically. Yeah, Europe, (laughs) France, Spain, Portugal, (laughs) South Africa. I've probably forgotten some, but a lot, yeah. And which places stand out when you think back about some of the best surfs you've had? Uh, well, Hawaii is incredible because it's, I mean, it's a cliche, but it is kind of like Mecca for surfers and it, and the surf is terrifying, but you, you're at the spiritual home of surfing and it's right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, and these, these swells just hit these rocky outcrops completely unimpeded, you know, and it's just, yeah, the, the surfers who are comfortable in those conditions still just inspire awe and disbelief. I've never been a big wave guy at all. Um, and then the other place is Indonesia. Um, I love going to Indonesia and I can't wait to get back. And there's, yeah, there's a few places, islands off the west coast of Sumatra where you can do boat trips and you just get transported from one perfect surf break to the next and it is, yeah, bliss. Yeah. In 2015, Tim, you were in LA for work. Mm. What was happening physically on that <clears throat> trip? Um, well, it was this great assignment and I was really having a lovely time, but I was at a place called Surfline, which was um, pretty much the pioneer of surf forecasting and we were doing a story about them for a little doco and I just had to keep going to the what they call the restroom. And, of course, to use the restroom, you had to ask for a key from reception <laughs> and it got embarrassing, you know, because I just kept, oh, can I have that key again? And then I just I would start hanging around outside waiting for someone else to go in or out, you know, because it was getting that ridiculous. And were you worried? Did you think, what the hell's happening? Oh, look, I mean, I'd noticed I was getting up during the night more often and I thought, well, I'd recently turned 50, maybe that's just what happens. But when it was happening like that during the day, I thought, this is kind of weird. And so when I got home and my wife had commented on me getting up during the night, I just, you know, checked in, checked in for the, you know, the post-50 medical um, and yeah, the news was not good. Well, tell me, tell me how that all happened. So mm. they, they run tests first of all. And what yeah. was so alarming about your, your PSA score? Yeah. So you go to the GP and you have the, the physical examination, which, you know, most people understand. Um, and he, he, I remember him registering concern, like it's, it's large and it's hard, the prostate. I was like, right, that doesn't sound good. And sent me for some scans uh, blood tests, and then got the results back, and my PSA was high, but I, it didn't really mean much to me. I had I didn't even know what a PSA was, um, but he referred me to a urologist to um, sort of interpret these results for me. And I remember I'd left his office, and I got a call from the urologist's office. In kind of this woman sounded quite sort of urgent. We've had a cancellation this afternoon. We can get you in this afternoon. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure. But I hadn't realised how sort of dire this whole thing was until I went to the urologist. Because I, I remember him saying, look, a normal PSA is anything below three. 
If it hits 10, that starts to ring alarm bells for us. Yours is 120. 120. And I just, it kind of didn't compute at first. I went, can you repeat that? And he did. And and then I just remember this sort of feeling of dread kind of rising up my body. And then there were more tests and a a biopsy. Um, And then coming back to the urologist with my wife to get the sort of diagnosis um and yeah that's etched in my memory pretty vividly just kind of sitting there and I remember my wife squeezing my hand really hard and this was the same hospital when our where our children were born and the last time Kirst squeezed my hand like that was when she was giving birth and you know this time it wasn't new life it was potentially my life being abbreviated um, but I'd, I, you know, I've got this ridiculous optimism I've realised through all this and I'd convinced myself that it was all going to be benign and it wouldn't be a problem. I'd done, you know, consulted Dr Google and the PSA was a fairly unreliable diagnostic tool and, and so I was waiting for him to just say, oh, yeah, it's just an infection, we'll give you some antibiotics and he just didn't perform his part of my script, you know. <laughs> Instead he said... Um, he slid a scan up onto his sort of wall-mounted light box and with a pen he said, this more or less confirms our suspicions and there was just a large white smudge where my right femur or thigh bone should have been on the scan and then that's when shit really got real and um, Kirst, I couldn't speak, Kirst said, can we just back up a minute? Are you saying that's cancer in Tim's leg? And he said, yes. And that's when everything changed, yeah, that moment. Uh, Did he give you any frameworks for life expectancy or treatment? Yeah, it was pretty perfunctory, I've got to say. And, um, you know, and I think you don't retain a lot of stuff in a setting like that. Um, You know, I remember him saying, we're going to refer you to an oncologist and he can explain further treatment options. We'll get you started on hormone therapy straight away. And it, so it wasn't even like there was a decision to be made. It was like very prescriptive. This is what's happening. And I, and I remember a sense of like just being sucked into this machine. And then I don't know how long that appointment went for. It didn't feel like it was very long. And sort of being out it back in the waiting room, kind of like what are we supposed to do now? And the receptionist sort of, Making refer making appointments for me for my referrals and and giving me a brochure on prostate cancer and then Kirst and I stepped out of there with these referrals and a brochure and just kind of looked at each other and was like, oh, what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, yeah, I I still feel like it's really just broken you know, to deliver news like that and not put any kind of supportive systems in place. I don't really understand why that happens the way it does. You say this was where your kids were born, the hospital where mm. your kids were born. What thought popped into your head about your your kids? Uh, there was a few. I mean, one was I'm really glad we did that trip around Australia. <laughs> I remember that was one of my first thoughts. We'd A few years earlier in 2011, we'd pulled the kids out of school and driven around Australia and this was my grand dream and it was amazing and the best thing I've ever done in my life. And so that was, yeah, one of my first thoughts. But I also remember leaving the hospital, you know, with the kids in a little baby crib and 
being so full of excitement and a bit of anxiety. But this time we were leaving just with dread and with no idea how to begin to navigate this situation. How much did you share with your your children about that news? Well, it was really difficult to know what to tell them and we just needed a bit of time to kind of process and very fortunately, my father-in-law, Ken, offered to take the kids for the afternoon while Kirsten and I spent a bit of time just sort of digesting all the information and working out what to tell them. And then I remember Ken delivering them home late in the afternoon and I was sitting on the couch and my then nine-year-old son just marched up to me and stood in front of me, looked me right in the eye and said, have you got cancer, Dad? And he kind of solved the dilemma for me because I just went, yeah, mate, yeah, I do. Um, So that, yeah, as I say, that kind of solved that problem. (laughs) Um, But it was still difficult to know the, the level of information to give them. You know, we'd been told I could I could expect five years of reasonable health. And so Kirsten and I thought, well, they're 9 and 13, at 14 and 18, it can kind of be a different kind of conversation. They know I've got cancer. I just had this blind optimism that somehow I was going to defy my prognosis. I don't really know why or how I was going to, but I was just convinced that I I was going to tell the kids that, I was going to be okay and I was going to make good on that promise. But that that was pretty naive, I guess. And I'm still not sure if it was the right way of approaching things. They have a much fuller understanding now, of course, of my diagnosis and prognosis. Is it unusual, Tim, to get a diagnosis of advanced prostate cancer at the age you were, just yeah, your early totally. 50s? Yeah, people are very um, surprised. All the doctors I've spoken to are very surprised you know, because there's much more testing and monitoring now. And so if they find prostate cancer in a a younger man, which is usually defined as sort of under 60, it's usually in the early stages and it's entirely treatable. They can remove the prostate, which, you know, it's no picnic, you know, but it is essentially a cure. And so, yeah, to be diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer at my age was highly unusual. is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. This part of our conversation includes discussion of sexual libido and a few fruity terms. Tim, after You received this diagnosis of advanced prostate cancer. You were put on on treatments straight Mm. away, one of which was chemo, which Mm. of course is is brutal for anyone who Mm. goes through it. And once you're getting that treatment, the hair loss is signalling to the world straight away, something's up. How did it change your way of being in the world? It was a complete sort of my old life was over and there was a new life to be navigated I remember people I know kind of walking past me or paddling past me in the surf without a flicker of recognition. It was not that they were shunning me, they just didn't recognise me with with no hair and this kind of grey grey pallor. Um, 
because I kept surfing throughout because it was one of the best things I could do for myself. And my nine-year-old was completely surf-obsessed. And I always say he was my greatest healer because he didn't care, not not in a callous way, but he didn't care that Dad's <laughs> having chemo. He wants to go surfing. He's going to ha- harangue me out of bed and make me take him to the beach. And it was the best possible thing. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people just don't know what to say. I had some odd moments socially where I remember being at a barbecue And, you know, you sort of find yourself sort of talking to someone and this woman, wife of a friend of mine, just sort of looked at me kind of dumbstruck, like she'd really drawn the short straw in terms of who she ended up with. And she just, it was like she just couldn't speak. And I feel kind of sympathetic because she, in the end, she just sort of shook her head and shrugged her shoulders and walked away because she just couldn't formulate any words. Yeah, you were, of course, in that, uh, those early weeks, months under this huge stress of this diagnosis and your body's full mm. of all this cocktail of, of hormones. How were you behaving? Like, how was your, your manner in the world mm. different? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't good at airports. I mean, one of, the, one of the side effects of hormone therapy is these quite dramatic mood swings and you just don't deal with stress very well. And so I became kind of infamous in my family for just losing my shit in airports. And there was one memorable time, which I'd rather forget, when I was just kind of checking in with the family, determined to keep it together. I had a board bag full of boards. I think we were going down to Victoria. And I just, all I wanted to do was check in and kind of get the family on the plane without incident. And... I went to one end of the check-in counter and the guy said, oh, you've got to go up there. So I kind of dragged my boards up there and I stopped and dropped my luggage sort of right behind the people in front of me checking in. And when they'd finished, the check-in lady kind of looked at me and said, you know, next time can you just wait? At least a little bit sharply, but it was enough to just send me. <laughs> and, and I went, what do you mean? I'm, I have been waiting. I haven't been doing anything other than waiting. And I kind of looked to my family for support, like, how's this weirdo? And my teenage daughter had tears in her eyes, like, oh, my dad is just making an ass of himself again. And oh, my heart just, and I went, oh, you know, it's like that column, what is it? Am I the arsehole? <laughs> yep, I'm the arsehole. So yeah. th- this hormone treatment that mm. you were put on, the intention is to block testosterone. That's right. Why? Yep. Well, apparently prostate cancer feeds on testosterone. That's my very layman's understanding. That's the way it was explained to me. And so the treatment for the past 70 or 80 years, the frontline treatment for the most common cancer in men, is essentially chemical castration. How is that delivered? Um, It's a drug. um, There's a variety of different hormone therapy drugs. Um, It's often called androgen deprivation therapy. And so that's the hormone that they specifically target to deprive you of. And it can be as simple as a three-monthly injection. I I quickly gravitated to the one-monthly injection because I had such awful side effects and such a terrible experience with it. I didn't want to have the three-monthly injection because I didn't know if I would survive just... Um, emotionally at times I was suicidal and and so I said look I can only do the one monthly injection. How quickly did you feel the side effects of of your testosterone Uh, being blocked? Oh look I mean there were probably some immediate ones just in terms of fatigue and and then the loss of libido and sexual function maybe six months 
And then the mood swings probably took a little bit longer as maybe 12, 18 months. And again, it's it's a bit rubbery because they were I was probably behaving oddly at times when I didn't realise I was. But then I think it was Father's Day, probably about three years after my diagnosis when I just hit this crushing low and just... And ironically, it was Father's Day and I just, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't stop crying. You know, my wife just didn't know what to do with me. I didn't want the kids to see me. Um, and she very quickly surmised that maybe what I needed was a week at this quite lovely health retreat where she used to work, which she hastily organised for me. And we explained to the kids this was going to be my Father's Day gift. And it was the best thing for me. One thing I've learned on hormone therapy is that kind of retreat environment. It doesn't have to be a fancy health retreat. I've done meditation retreats, which give the same sort of comfort as just being kind of insulated from the outside world and and the noise and chaos that you have trouble tolerating, I guess. The impact that hormone therapy had mm. on your libido, Tim, was mm. that something that, you know, your oncologist had talked to you about? Um, oh, look, it was given sort of passing mention. You're given the sort of obligatory information sheet that lists all the side effects, you know, with a sort of explanation that, you know, not all men uh, experience all these side effects. And so, you know, you don't know, kind of know which ones you're going to get. But, yeah, I kind of understood that was a likely outcome. But nobody explained to me that there was anything I could have done about that. You know, when it's when it's explained as chemical castration... And if you don't do it, you're going to die. You just kind of go, well, okay, I guess I live without a libido and sexual function. And what was it like? I mean, as one doctor said to me, you know, blokes are basically machines that run on testosterone. So when it's suppressed or blocked, you, you just kind of feel a bit empty and hollow and lack energy and drive. The fatigue is probably one of the um, most difficult things to manage. Um, some men get really bad hot flushes and sweats. I was luckily spared that side effect. But, I mean, it, it's literally the same drug that they give trans teens who are transitioning to block the masculinising effects of puberty. So, you know, that gives you a sense of how kind of profound its impact is. And it, and it can actually, I mean, men over time can grow breasts, their genitals shrink. It is almost like this kind of involuntary gender reassignment what did it mean for your marriage? Oh, it's been incredibly difficult and, um, you know, I still feel angry that we weren't kind of offered, you know, more support and I've since learned that the partners of men with this condition often report higher levels of distress than the men themselves and so that the fact that there was no psychological support offered or psychological kind of monitoring is, I think, just negligent. Um, so it was devastating. Was it something you could talk about yeah. with one another? Yeah, but it, uh, just over time, I, I think, yeah, the nature of the relationship completely changes. Um, so, you know, you still love and care for each other, but um, you kind of feel more like just mates or siblings or, and co-parents. It's very strange. How long did it take you to finally see a, a sexual health specialist? Uh, it was probably about four years in. 
just never kind of got to the top of the to-do list because there was so much to kind of get used to and stay on top of, you know, medications and scripts and tests. And and when I finally got to see this guy, he said that's a very common scenario that men are so preoccupied with survival and just navigating it that by the time they seek help, a lot of the damage has been done because if you're not getting reg- regular kind of blood flow to that, organ in its engorged state, then it just loses that ability to not put too fine a point on it. Um, And I was kind of, I guess, yeah, angry to discover that, you know, something as simple as Viagra might have helped at the start. And then there's there's a range of treatments of escalating sort of invasiveness. I don't know, if I had my time over again, I might have approached it differently. At the time, it's difficult to wrap your head around those things because I mean, you've kind of become asexual. So to go to these drastic lengths, it just, yeah. But you, you, you do need counsel because it's such a foreign land you find yourself in. It was like we were marooned on kind of separate islands of grief. And so that's, yeah, that's been really difficult. It's been really tough for your sense of yourself as a man and your relationship with your partner, has it changed the way you relate to other women, do you think, or other yeah, men? Like, yeah, how is that different? definitely. I mean, yeah, I guess that's one point I'd make is it's kind of not all bad, you know. <laughs> what do you um, mean? You know, I could just relate to women on a different level and you kind of realise how blokes just kind of assess women physically just as a kind of reflex. And I remember a friend of mine commenting that her daughter was just starting to attract attention from young men and she said, you know, I wish they could see her as a person, not just an assemblage of body parts. And I kind of just got that on a different level. I'm like, wow, gee, you know, I just... And I remember when the whole Me Too thing happened, I had no inkling that, you know, so many women had those kinds of experiences. And I remember feeling almost a little relieved that, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a threat to anyone. Not that I would have ever considered myself a threat, but even just in your gaze or in your manner that you might make someone uncomfortable. You know, I say I feel like the, the Switzerland of the gender wars, you know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder too if there's a sense, Tim, where women are more used to their bodies being at the mercy of hormones that mm. fluctuate and come and go, whether you're menstruating, whether you're pregnant or breastfeeding mm. or menopause. And and for men, it, until you're in older age, perhaps yeah. you don't have to think about your bodies in that same way. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's not something I'd really thought about a great deal. Um, but, yeah, I remember thinking this must be a little bit how pregnant women feel when you sort of become public property and people would feel very sort of liberated to comment on my appearance. And even when they were being well-meaning, you know, they say, oh, gee, you're looking well because, geez, the last time I saw you, you looked like shit. <laughs> you know, and I go, you didn't need the second half of that statement. You really didn't, you know. Um, <laughs> you did have surgery as well for, mm. for bladder function. Was that helpful for you? Uh, it's called a TERP, and I don't know if I'll get this right, transurethanol, <laughs> I won't get it right, resection of the prostate. you to have to know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a urinary retention issue as the prostate enlarges. And, you know, for the advocates of intelligent design who think there's a grand architect to all life on earth, perhaps they can explain the male urinary system to me. 
the way, <laughs> specifically the way the prostate surrounds the urethra and as it enlarges <laughs> in old age and with prostate cancer, it just condemns men to a life of broken sleeps and getting up during the night and having to plan their moves around the nearest toilet and surely a benevolent creator could have come up with a more intelligent design than this. Or maybe it's proof God is a woman after all. <laughs> there you go. I mean, the urination had been that red flag for you in the first place. So did mm. it feel good to have that, at least that element of your physical changes addressed? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd been on a surf trip on a boat through Melanesia just before I had that surgery. And, and I realised on the boat that urinating was becoming a real issue. It was a, becoming a real slow trickle. And I learned once I went to the urologist when I got home that, he's, in his words, that I was very close to blocking up altogether, which quickly becomes a medical emergency. So the bladder swells, it can burst, you can die. And if that had happened while I was floating around in the middle of Melanesia... I wouldn't be here unless someone was packing a catheter and was prepared to, <laughs> to use it. Use it. <laughs> it's all those basic functions of your body that you don't really appreciate until oh my God. you're gone. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sorry if this is a bit blunt, but I'd never thought I could be so relieved to have someone shove a metal object up the eye of my cock. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you. Thank you so much. That is so much better. Yeah. yeah. So there are all of these suite of medical interventions that, that are happening for you and you're pursuing in, in hospitals. Mm. What other things were you doing at the same time? You've mentioned your wife sending <clears throat> you on that retreat, mm. the health retreat. Mm. What else were you doing to try to look after yourself physically? Oh, you? look, I was lucky. I'm cursed an acupuncturist and so very well connected in that world of complementary therapies and she just did this amazing job of sort of assembling a team and this is what should be a part of standard care but we had to work it out for ourselves and I was so privileged that we had that community around us and that we could afford it. So she found me a nutritionist, a physiotherapist, a naturopath and look I mean people have differing views on naturopaths. My naturopath was amazing. She was a former oncology nurse so she had that medical understanding um, but even as just someone to talk to, she was incredible and I'm sure she helped me navigate um, chemotherapy as well as I did. After doing lots of reading and lots of research, and I know like doing your own research is a kind of loaded term these days, but I think as a journalist that was an asset because I had a sense of what was credible and what wasn't. Um, but you can get lost down wormholes, you know, and people can prey on your vulnerability and your hope and so in the end, I came up with this little self-care mantra to distill down this sort of overwhelming information I was trying to process. And that was, I've just got to remember to take my meds, M-E-D-S, and that's standard for meditation, exercise, diet and sleep. And they were the four pillars of my self-care, you know, not to replace conventional oncology, <laughs> but to sit alongside it, to manage the side effects and to improve quality of life and hopefully to improve my prognosis. How did hallucinogens enter the picture for you? Um, very serendipitously, really. I, you know, I was at this very low ebb where I was feeling suicidal. I realised I needed to do something and um, my oncologist had recommended antidepressants and I said, well, you know, you're giving me this drug that's making me depressed. And I was just... I just I was driving back from a surf and I actually heard Michael Pollan 
interviewed on Radio National talking about his new book, You Can Change Your Mind or How to Change Your Mind, about psychedelics. And the research was extraordinary. One clinical trial in the US that showed 80% of terminal cancer patients lost all fear of death from one psilocybin trip. And again, very fortunately, there was a conference in Byron Bay, as you would probably guess, on um, psychedelic-assisted therapy, but it was very sober, very academic, very evidence-based and very convincing. Um, and, I, you know, I looked at these studies and I sort of put some feelers out and found an experienced therapist and signed up for a couple of sessions of psychedelic-assisted therapy. And what happened? Where did you go for that? I went happen? to this cute little cottage sort of out near Wollumbin in northern New South Wales and was greeted by this lovely man who was a qualified psychologist who did this on the down low because he so believed in the therapy. And the initial session was with MDMA because he considered that sort of gentler and more predictable. We, we had a bit of a talk. You know, Michael Pollan talks all about set and setting. So you need to set an intention and then you need to be in a safe setting. What so, did you bring in with you from home? Uh, just a few little keepsakes at his suggestion to kind of create like a little shrine. So I had photos of the kids and the family, my brothers. I had a photo of myself surfing. I think I had a little Buddha and just a few little trinkets I kind of arranged by the bed. And then he gave me a little ceramic bowl with this capsule and I took it and washed it down with water and he gave me noise-cancelling headphones and eye shades and I just kind of lay on the bed and waited, you know. And, um, you know, it's like a kid on a long road trip kind of going, are we there yet? <laughs> and then just very gradually there's a psychedelic soundtrack that he's curated that is really curated to kind of move you through the stages of the experience and then I gradually just had this magic carpet ride or at times more of a bobsled ride. <laughs> um, but it was, it was wonderful. And what surprised you or what came up for mm. you during that that wasn't something or someone yeah. you expected to think of? Well, my intention that I had set was to take myself back to that diagnosis and try and release any sort of trapped trauma from that experience. And when I did take myself back there, you know, I'd been feeling a bit sort of unkindly towards the urologist who'd delivered this news fairly abruptly and without any supportive therapies. And in the middle of my therapy, I just felt overwhelming compassion for him. Just thought, oh, you poor man, that must be so hard. And in that experience, all I felt was love, compassion, bliss and sort of release. And it was wonderful. So I had a second session with psilocybin and then I've done just of my own volition, I've done a little bit of microdosing sort of, as a sort of self-styled maintenance program, but I've had complete relief of any depressive symptoms and certainly no suicidal ideation and I'm much happier and, yeah, life's pretty joyful most of the time. Pretty joyful? Yeah, yeah. I went surfing this morning at a beautiful beach and the sun was shining and, you know, there's just pandanus lining the foreshore and a few people just exchanging pleasantries in the surf and had lovely interactions with the old lady from the June Care group who was looking after the, the bush as I wandered back through. And, yeah, I still have my blue days, but um, 
when things are good, they're really, really good. And and I look back and go, I remember when it just could just be a day. It could just be a day going about your business. And I don't I don't feel like I just have a day anymore. It's just, oh my God, life's incredible. Or oh, what am I gonna do? Are your priorities different from yeah. before the diagnosis? Hundred percent. Yeah. I had the sensation of just like wanting to kind of pour myself into my children, you know, surfing with my son and just like taking such pride in their accomplishments. My daughter's a very talented poet and writer and my son's a very keen surfer and guitarist. So, you know, they've both followed some of my favourite things, which is a great joy. I've got this great memory of getting changed after a surf with a mate of mine and in in the morning and he said, uh, are you working today? And I had to stop and think about it and I went, if it fits into my lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so what you've talked about, you know, in the book, Tim, and, and just in sharing your story mm. more generally, this is really intimate and mm. really vulnerable. Mm. What kind of responses have, have you had? Oh, it's been overwhelming. I can't, I've never experienced anything like it. And it's hard to know how to kind of do it justice. Just, I mean, the sheer volume of messages from not just men, but partners of men with prostate cancer saying, thank you. No one has ever articulated what we're going through before. Um, I've seen doctors, oncologists sharing articles of mine on Twitter saying, all my colleagues must read this. A doctor who produces a handbook for doctors called Every Doctor and the subtitle is Healthy Doctors Equals Healthy Patients, which I love. Um, wanted to include an extract of mine in her book. And then I was approached by these medical researchers who were trying to apply for $50 million worth of funding to produce a new form of prostate cancer treatment that could replace hormone therapy. And they wanted to use the book in their funding application and I had a Zoom call with them yesterday and it was entirely mind-blowing. You know, they're just saying, you've energised our whole research team. This is the best possible thing for our funding application. It's a complete paradigm shift in prostate cancer. No one has ever challenged hormone therapy before. And I'm just like, great. <laughs> why do you think it, given what a common cancer it mm. is, why do you think it's taken so long for men to talk about it? Fragile masculinity, maybe. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it seems to be such a taboo. And, you know, and I talk about this, you know, women can just be so kind of stoic and blunt about mastectomies and things like that. And no one was talking about this. You know, even men in the um, support groups I've been to and the online forums that I joined up um, were discussing this stuff. And... I just, I don't know, I just had this really strong com, um, compulsion to just kind of drag it into the light and go, hey, how do we feel about this as a society? Is this, does, do people think this is okay? Because I don't think it is. It's, it's a very effective treatment. It's very convenient, you know, three-monthly injection without the obvious ravages of some other cancer treatments, but the psychological toll is devastating and you can't do it without putting some supportive therapies in place. It's madness. And it's condemning millions of men around the world and their families to lives of misery. And I say, everyone boasts about survival times in cancer research. And I said, you know, this like the proverbial restaurant where 
the food is terrible, but the helpings are huge, <laughs> you know. Surfing has been this thread for you, right, mm. from, you know, those earliest waves as, mm. as a kid. How is surfing different now? Oh, look, I'm, I'm not as good at it, <laughs> you know. I can feel pretty unco out in the surf sometimes um, and I'm very fearful of injury and accident. I'm on a bone-strengthening agent where if I had some sort of serious accident, it could be very bad news. So I approach it pretty conservatively. But the, the joy and the therapy of it is more precious than ever. And in fact, I've pitched this concept to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of running surf clinics for men with prostate cancer to give them this sense of just freedom and release and joy and being immersed in something greater than the self. And, you know, it's a cardio workout, it's upper body strength, it's meditative, it does so many good things for you all at once. If, if it was a drug, you know, it would be the greatest breakthrough in cancer treatment in human history. It's a good prescription to, yeah. be, on the, to be on the ocean with you, Tim. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story on oh, Conversations. It's my great pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konowski. I spoke with Tim in 2020, and he tells us that a year later, he is in robust health, has a new job teaching journalism at Bond University, and is still surfing heaps. So that is brilliant news. Congratulations from us at Conversations, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.